Okay, time for a congregational poll. Uh, raise your hand if you like traveling. If you like traveling. Okay. I'm not sure some of you are telling the truth. Um, I, don't know, I don't know anyone who really enjoys traveling. I mean, sure, you might like to explore a new or familiar faraway place, but do you really enjoy the journey? Uh, what about those journeys that include unexpected hiccups or delays? Uh, I remember a journey that my wife and I took, uh, I guess, about 14 years ago. We've been married for about a year, and we were on our way home from a long trip to Turkey. Uh, and my, my newly pregnant wife um, was, was just beginning to discover what morning sickness felt like. And after a few days in Turkey and a long flight back to the U.S., I, I walked my queasy wife through JFK. Um, and we were eagerly getting ready for that final leg of our journey home. Just one more flight to D.C. It was, um, at this point, about 24 hours, it felt like. Our, our flight, uh, we got to the airport, was delayed. And it was delayed again and again. And finally, we, we found our seats and my wife immediately fell asleep. Well, she woke up about an hour later and the plane was taxiing and she said, I, I can't believe I slept through the whole flight. And I had to break it to her that we hadn't taken off yet. We were still at, at JFK. Um, what? She was weary. And so what does a weary traveler need at that point in time? Well, what my wife needed most in that moment was uh, not harsh words for the airline or the control tower uh, or other reasons to complain. Uh, what she needed most was my love and the reminder that we would eventually make it back home. Last week, uh, we, we likened 1 Peter to a travel guide, uh, a travel guide for Christians making their way home to heaven, a, a guide to help along the journey. Well, this morning, as we turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning there in verse 22, and studying through chapter 2, verse 3, we'll consider how Christians are to encourage their fellow sojourners as they make their way home. What do weary travelers need? That's what we'll think about this morning. And if you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to begin there in verse 22. We're going to study through chapter 2, verse 3. If you're using one of the Bibles provided there in the pews, I believe you can find the passage on page 1014. The first readers of 1 Peter were God's elect exiles scattered throughout modern Turkey. These believers in Jesus were facing oppression for their faith. They had refused to conform to the passions of the world, and so they were greeted with surprise, with scorn and slander. Peter wanted to remind the recipients of this letter that they are strangers and sojourners and that they should live like it. Their lives are different. That, that is good. That even brings glory to God. There is a sense in which we could say that the overall thrust of Peter's letter is to embrace your exile. And as we continue our study of Peter's letter, we continue to hear Peter's exhortations to live as elect exiles. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 to chapter 2, verse 3, Peter tells us, he exhorts us, commands us to love earnestly, to use our lips lawfully, and to long for that which will lead to our full maturity in Jesus Christ. I want you to see this in the text. So follow along as I read it to you now. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning there in verse 22. Verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, 
for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. There's the command to love earnestly. Keep going. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Keep reading in verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. There's the second command to use our lips lawfully. Verse 2 of chapter 2. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Keep reading there. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. There's the command to long for that, that which will lead to our full maturity. Long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Well, I hope you saw there the three main commands in our text, in these verses from Peter. Love earnestly, use your lips lawfully, and long for maturity. We'll take these three commands as the three points of the rest of the sermon. Uh, There's significant material attached to each of them, or in some cases, undergirding them, these commands. So we're going to unpack that material uh, in the context of each command. Let's begin with Peter's first command in these verses, love earnestly. That's our first point. Read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 to 25 again. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love... Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Well, Peter's first command, as you see there, is found at the tail end of verse 22, but he prefaces the command with a claim. These saved sojourners have done something. These elect exiles, Peter says, they have purified their souls by their obedience to the truth. That language of purification has connotations from the Old Testament of ceremonial washings. So in preparation for worship at the tabernacle or temple, Old Testament saints would wash and purify themselves. So in what sense have these elect exiles washed themselves and been made clean? What's what's Peter saying here? Well, simply this. You have washed your souls in the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That is what every Christian does when they obey Jesus' gospel command to repent and believe in Him. Do you remember the, the first words of Jesus' ministry in the gospel of Mark? Jesus said this in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Those are commands from Jesus. And those who obey those commands have been obedient to the truth. New Testament writers use, often use that phrase, the truth, as a kind of shorthand way of referring to the good news of Jesus Christ. So listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Paul writes, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Consider Colossians chapter 1, verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, you have 
heard this before in the word of truth, the gospel. Or here how, here's how James puts it in James chapter 1, verse 18. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Peter's simply doing the same thing here. He's saying, look, brothers and sisters, you've washed your souls in the blood of Jesus Christ. You've believed the truth. And friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to invite you to come and wash your soul in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to invite you to come to Him to be obedient to the Lord Jesus, the Lord of the universe, the author of your life. Did you know that God made you? The happy, holy, and heavenly God who made all things in this world, including you. He gave you life and breath. He he made you. But just like each one of us here, you have sinned and rebelled against God. We have all sinned and rebelled against God. That's what sin is. It's rebellion against God. Choosing to live your own way instead of God's way. The Bible teaches us that sin and rebellion against God carries with a cost. Or perhaps it would be better to say a wage. You see, the cost of our working in sin, or the wage due to our working in sin, is eternal death in hell. Because we've sinned against the eternal God. The the Bible even sometimes describes our sin as something that makes us unclean. And amazingly, Peter is saying here that we can be made clean in God's sight. We can be purified, not through the shedding of our blood, but through the shedding of Jesus' blood. Because the wages of sin is death. Someone has got to get paid those wages. And the good news of the Bible is that the happy, holy, and heavenly God sent His most beloved Son to earth for that purpose, to be paid those wages. Jesus lived the life that we have not lived, the life of perfect obedience to God the Father. Jesus died the death that we deserve to die, receiving in His death on the cross the payment and punishment due to sin. On the cross, Jesus' blood was shed. The Bible teaches us without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission or no forgiveness of sin. Jesus died having shed His blood, and He was laid in a stone-sealed tomb. But that's not all. Three days after his death, God the Father raised Jesus Christ from the dead, vindicating him and proving to us all that the wages of sin for God's people has been fully paid by Jesus Christ. And now Jesus commands all men and women everywhere to repent. That is to turn from sin and to trust in him for cleansing, for purifying, for salvation. So friend, come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith today. Believe on him and you will be saved. Believe on him and wash your soul in His blood. There's an old wonderful hymn that asks this question, Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? This is what Elisha Hoffman wrote, Lay aside the garments that are stained with sin, and be washed in the blood of the Lamb. There's a fountain flowing for the soul unclean. Oh, be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Peter, he's not so much asking a question as he is making a statement or a claim. He is claiming that these brothers and sisters have washed their souls in the blood of Jesus. But he's claiming more than this, isn't he? 
See, they've washed their souls, and this is for a sincere brotherly love. And, and by brotherly love here, Peter means love for their brothers and sisters in Christ. The, the ESV that we have here in the, the pews, and many of us have here before us, it, the translators typically have a footnote explaining that the phrase uh, means both male and female, both brothers and sisters. Uh, they've left that footnote out here, but it's certainly present in the Greek text. Peter is expressing that both men and women have been saved to show love to the family of God. It's almost as if Peter is suggesting one of the goals of conversion and coming to Jesus for soul purification is to love those whom Jesus has loved. Here's how Peter's argument works. Since you have come to love Jesus, and this is evident by having washed your soul in the blood of the Lamb, and since part of the goal of your conversion is to love God's people, then, and here comes the command, love earnestly from a pure heart. Do you understand what the divinely commissioned apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ is saying to us? He is saying this, it's not enough to know other Christians. It's not enough to turn up to church and sit next to them. It's not enough to sing songs with them. It's not enough to greet them and say, hey, how are you doing? Good, okay. It's not enough to read your Bible alongside them. It's not enough to listen to the same teaching or read the same books. Peter is saying, you've got to love God's people. He's saying just what Jesus said, isn't he? Here's Jesus from John chapter 13, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And love is not just some sentimental feeling. It may involve that, but it is more than that. Love is, is commitment. It's connection. Peter is saying that we've got to selflessly and sacrificially serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. We've got to spend our energy and emotions to build our brothers and sisters in Christ up. We've got to make them stronger. Love is costly. It pays a price. We know this from Jesus' love for us, don't we? So if your interactions and relationships with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ don't cost you something, if they're not somewhat burdensome, if you're not made to give of yourself, then maybe you're not really loving them. Now, they may be loving you, but are you loving them? And if you're not really loving them, then maybe you aren't really a disciple of Jesus. I mean, listen to Jesus again in John chapter 13, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. All people will know. And that includes you too. Now, this doesn't mean you get to criticize your brothers and sisters in Christ for not loving you the way you want to be loved. We need to humbly love and serve others. And we also need to humbly receive love. And service. So when a brother or sister extends love and care to you, maybe in a fumbling kind of manner, say thank you. Um, don't say or think, what you did at all was nice, but I'd feel more loved if. That's not a great way to spur others on in love and good deeds. Uh, both giving and receiving love will take humility, it will take an attitude that longs to Christ, to exalt, to exalt Christ over all. So let's humbly give ourselves to loving and spurring one another on to love and good deeds. There's something else we need to recognize here. I wonder if you see it in Peter's words. Peter uses familial language. He speaks of brotherly love. 
And we need to embrace the family language of Scripture. So just as you would leave your house at 1.30 in the morning to go and rescue a sibling or to care for your mom, so when your Christian brother or sister calls for your aid, and you've, you've got to run to them and rescue them and help them. We say, but it doesn't fit my schedule. And Peter would say, I'm not seeing your point. Uh, is he not your brother? Are, are you telling me you don't love him? We might say, but she's awkward. And Peter would say, and do you think you're normal? I mean, is relating to you easy? Is she not your sister? We say, but, but I don't know where to start. And Peter would say, start by going to your brother or sister, asking them how you can help. And we say, but I can't. And Peter would say, you need to try. One believer said this about the church today. He talked about a fellowship crisis. He wrote, quote, The church today is suffering a fellowship crisis. In a world of big, impersonal institutions, the church often looks like just another big, impersonal institution. One seldom finds within the institutionalized church today that winsome intimacy among people where masks are dropped, honesty prevails, and that sense of communication and community beyond the human abounds, where there is literally the fellowship of and in the Holy Spirit, end quote. So how do we overcome this fellowship crisis? How do we love our brothers and sisters? We love them by talking with them about the things that they love and that we have in common. So what, what does your brother or sister in Christ love? What do you have in common? Jesus. You have Jesus in common. So when you get together with another Christian, and you should get together with another Christian, especially members of your church family, have spiritual conversation. Right? Open your Bible and read it. Talk about it. Ask your brother or sister if they have any practical needs. Ask how you can pray for each other. And then actually pray for one another. Very often we kind of overcomplicate discipleship. We overcomplicate following Jesus and overcomplicate loving one another. It's really very simple. Share what you're learning from God's word with one another and pray for one another. Be around each other a lot. Uh, think, think of a household and how you live and move within a household and how you connect to others in the household. You're around family all the time in a household. So what do you need to do with your Christian family? Well, you need to be around them all the time, a lot. Uh, you need to see them in the same family living room where there are couches, maybe sometimes a little less comfortable, but a room like this, the, the family living room where we hear teaching from a, a father in the family and we talk about it together. So, so don't leave this room without having just one, just one spiritual, spiritually meaningful conversation. Uh, not a conversation about the weather, or, or college basketball or the latest political machinations or pop news hubbub. No, a spiritually meaningful conversation. Talk about a line from a hymn that struck you. A, a prayer of confession that pricked your conscience. A, a scripture reading that comforted you. A sermon point that intrigued you. Or a prayer of praise that, that lifted your heart. It is normal for Christians to talk about these things. It is not normal for Christians to avoid them or to avoid each other. Don't run out the door. You're running away from your brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, don't do it. Have one spiritually meaningful conversation with another brother or sister. You might think, but I've got plans I, I need to get to. I'd encourage you, maybe in the weeks ahead, think about changing your plans. 
You may want to think about planning your Sundays differently. You may want to think about planning to love your brothers and sisters in Christ on Sunday. And you do that in part by carving out space and time and having meaningful conversation with them. Think of it this way. If Jesus said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, how are your unbelieving friends going to see that? If your unbelieving friends were, were here with you and they saw you rushing out the door, would they come to the conclusion, man, he really loves these people? But what if, what if you made them stick around for a little while? Wouldn't a better witness to your unbelieving friends be to make them a bit uncomfortable by how long you hang around these brothers and sisters? You need to see your brothers and sisters in the family living room, this room. And they need to see you. You need to see your family in the kitchen, like the, the actual kitchen, where you help prepare a meal for your family and then help them clean up alongside your brothers and sisters. Uh, you need to see your family in the dining room, the fellowship hall. And so eat and feast with them and rejoice in God's good gifts. Isn't it wonderful that he made food to taste good? You can actually talk about that at your table together. Isn't it so kind of God that he can delight our tongues and satisfy our stomachs? You need to see your family in the nursery, uh, the, the actual nursery, where you serve together and care for little ones. If you think to yourself, but I don't know how to care for little ones, then all the more reason for you to be in the nursery. That's where you can learn to begin learning to be a big brother or a big sister. Uh, you, you need to see your family in the library, uh, a classroom where you're studying the Bible together. So turn up to discipleship hour, your small groups. And you need to see your fellow believers in your home, like your actual home, your apartment or your condo, where you can invite your church family in and bless them. Bless them with food or tea or coffee or maybe nothing consumable at all. But bless them with fellowship and meaningful spiritual conversations. Have you ever had one of those uh, spiritual conversations where you haven't eaten a single thing and yet you leave so filled because it's been so full of conversation about the Lord and your, your soul is warmed. That's really the best kind of hospitality, isn't it? The kind we should all aim for. And during each one of those kind of touch points, connections with your fellow believers, we need to move toward one another in love, seeing how we might seek to serve one another. Now, I have just exhorted you to love one another at length. And I'm not quite done exhorting you to do that just yet. But, dear congregation, I do not want you to get the impression or conclude that I think you're lacking in love. I don't. I do think that you are full of love. I see it very often. It's wonderfully encouraging. You bring each other meals. You turn up at each other's homes. You pray for one another. You need to keep doing these things. This is, by God's grace, a congregation that loves one another. And loves one another earnestly. And we should not grow weary of doing this good. So keep loving one another and keep loving one another with a sincere heart. Peter commands, you see there, that our love be sincere or literally without wax. And the idea, it comes from um, ancient sculpting. So say you had this sculpture that fell over and a portion of its ear broke off. Well, you would take a piece of wax that's hopefully very close in color to that stone and you'd fix the ear that was chipped. Well, your love can't be like that can't be like wax. It's got to be solid. It has to be stone. It has to be real. It has to be from a pure heart. It has to involve some energy. In Peter's words, it needs to be earnest. And that word earnest actually means to be stretched. 
Are you stretched out in love for your brothers and sisters? Sometimes, to our shame, we are stretched out in love for the world. Uh, The love of the world has stretched us out in in different and varying directions. And sometimes we need to love the world less. Well, at all times we need to love the world less and to love God's people more. Our love for the world can sometimes be seen uh, as our our time, our talent, our treasures kind of delegated and devoted to the things of the world. If you were to chart your your life out over this past week in in what you dedicated your time and talent and treasure to, uh, what would kind of win, the the world or, or, or God's people? Are you stretched out in love for the world or in love for God's people? In verses 23 to 25, Peter's not leaving this thought behind that we're to love one another earnestly. Instead, he's actually reinforcing it. Or or better yet, he's, he's reinforcing us to actually live this command. So he sets up this sharp contrast between the fading flesh and the forever word of God. He does it by quoting Isaiah 40. That's why we read from Isaiah 40 earlier in the service. These verses 23 to 25 are an encouragement and energy to live out this command. You see, the flesh, it it peters out. It it fades away. But the word of the Lord is powerful and permanent. When you you think of being stretched out in love for your brothers and sisters, you might be tempted to grow faint-hearted or weary. But Peter is saying, look, that all that God calls you to do, he will give you the grace to do. Peter's saying, look, Christian, you've been born again, not by something perishable, but by something powerful. Not by something that fades, but by something that is forever. You've been born again through the living and abiding word of God. This gospel that has been preached to you and that you have come to obey is filled with vitality and verve. Remember, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but now you've been made alive. So so live Live stretched out in love. Love earnestly. That's Peter's first command. Peter's second command could be summarized like this. Use your lips lawfully. This is the second point. Use your lips lawfully. And here we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Take a look at, at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all Slander. These are all ways that we might use our lips unlawfully or sinfully. And yet the command here is essentially that we would put these things away and use our lips lawfully. In many ways, Peter is saying the reverse, or perhaps it's better to say the the inverse of what he just said. Peter commanded us to love earnestly. And now Peter addresses the, the inverse of love. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And in order to see how these five things are the inverse of love, we need to see how they are perverse. In fact, that's where the list begins with perversion. Perversion would be an equally fitting translation for that word malice. What Peter has in mind is the the perverting of virtue, the perverting of moral principles from their purposes to evil ends. It's a rather general word. It's actually a kind of catch-all word at times. It's a good place to begin with a list of vices. Uh, But malice, it also has more particular connotations of ill will toward others. And this is especially relevant as Peter has been locating his his discussion of love in actual relationships between Christians. So with with this in mind, the the malice in view is a kind of settled disposition against. It's a kind of antagonistic, 
or, or hateful feelings toward another. The idea would be like, like walking into a room and seeing a person you dislike and so purposefully trying to avoid them. None of that is to be found among God's people. Instead, we need, instead of avoiding one another, we need to be approaching one another. That, that's the antidote to malice, drawing near to one another instead of dodging one another. Malice is forbidden, and so is deceit. Here, Peter is concerned that God's people do not take advantage of one another through crafty or underhanded methods. If malice requires looking down on your brother or sister in sinful hatred, then deceit requires a spirit of using your brother or sister for, for personal gain. You, you, you dupe your brother or sister or, or place him at a personal disadvantage for personal benefit. That's the idea here. And hypocrisy is actually another form of deception. The word itself speaks to the wearing of a mask that comes from ancient theater and acting. It speaks to a kind of insincerity. Uh, you're, you're pretending to have qualities or beliefs that you do not really have. And the goal is to create this impression that's at odds with one's real purposes or motivations. So there's a, a public guise with a heart uh, that is deceitful. Perhaps a searching question for each one of us is this. Do, do I ever wear a mask with my brothers or sisters in Christ? Do I, do I let them in? Do I let them see the real me and hear my struggles as they really are? Um, have you ever been frustrated with your lack of fellowship in the local church? Is it possible that some of that frustration might be compounded by wearing a mask? What if you took it off? What if you said, can I, can I be honest with you for a minute? Can I just tell you what I'm struggling with? And then go ahead and share. I think that we might all be surprised that when we begin to take off masks, others do too. There is a, a danger in the vulnerability, yes, but this is where we must trust our God and trust that He's working through the Holy Spirit, through the life of our brother and sister in Christ. Trust that they will keep their covenant promise, remembering that they've promised to endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows, to believe the best about them, that they have good intentions, that they love us, they love God, and want the best for us. Now, sometimes when we take our masks off, what is revealed is that we're envious. That's the next vice that Peter enumerates there, envy. To be envious is to be resentful toward the success, the possessions, relationships, or positions of others. It's to be jealous of someone's perceived advantage. In the ancient literature, to be envious or jealous of someone is occasionally described as having a heart that burns. Your heart burns. You have a heart that's burning with longing for the welfare that another person has. Why do they have that house? Why do they have that job? Why do they have that spouse, that family, those clothes, that confidence, that money, that spirituality? Why do they have that? The, the why question often reveals a want, doesn't it? We can covet almost anything. But our coveting and envy reveal that we're less ready to rejoice at our brother's happiness and more ready to rejoice at our own. And that just perhaps we're discontent with what God has given Sometimes the envy stays in our hearts, and at other times it comes out as slander. That's what Peter says there. Peter says that we're to put away all slander. 
Slanderous words are, are words of destruction. And if you haven't done so already, I encourage you to go listen to, to Garrett Kell's uh, talk a couple of weeks back on the, on the tongue. He gave an excellent uh, talk on slander. But slanderous words are words of destruction. They're aimed at damaging or destroying another person's reputation. S- slander is speaking ill against another person. So, so each of us should ask, will, will my words lift my brother or sister in Christ's reputation? Or will, it, or will my words bring my brother or sister's reputation down? You know, sometimes slander is uh, ushered in, kind of in the guise of prayer, the need for wisdom. How do I relate to this person or for counsel? Slander occurs most often behind people's backs when they're not present. If, if we are to gossip, then let us gossip good things about our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let us gossip about how they're displaying this particular evidence of God's grace, this kind of gentleness and love. Let us fight against slander by sustaining and elevating our brother and sister's reputation. Now, in meditating on these vices, we've skipped over three rather important words. We've skipped over three even little words. We've skipped over the words put away and all. With the words put away, Peter is forbidding us from using our lips unlawfully. Peter is forbidding us from using our lips in in ways that hurt and harm our brothers and sisters in Christ. In his exhortation to put these things away, Peter is literally telling us to strip them out of our lives. The, The actual language is that of stripping off a garment. So you could think of it like ripping wallpaper off the wall. Peter's kind of verbally grabbing us by the collar and saying, Christian, get this out of your life. Get it out now. you got to get a hold of your tongue now. There's no doubt that this list isn't even complete. This isn't an exhaustive list. It's an exemplary list. Peter's just chosen a handful of vices. And if we've come to this verse honestly, it has revealed that too often we're full of love. But sometimes it's self-love. To to treat a brother or sister with malice, with ill will, means that we must look down on them. And that means that we must love ourselves to lift ourselves up. To exercise deceit, to be crafty, is to use another brother or sister for personal gain. means that we must objectify them. We love our benefit more than theirs. Uh, to, To be a hypocrite, to wear a mask, means that we must believe at some level that our brother or sister isn't worthy of the truth. To be envious, to be resentful of another brother or sister means that we don't think we're deserving of God's generosity. Uh, We don't think that they're deserving of God's generosity toward them. To to slander another brother or sister means that we must actually murder them in our heart in order to murder their reputation with our mouths. Isn't it striking how only a handful of vices can reveal that we are in great need of love and how much we need to love? And to make matters worse, Peter used that devastating little three-letter word there, all. We're to put all of these things away. It's true that that word all only shows up three times, you see there in our English translations, but it's implied in connection with every vice in this list. Peter's not saying that we must put away all malice and all deceit, but that we can have some hypocrisy and envy. No, Peter is saying we need to put away all of this and all of that and all of that too and all of this too. Not even a trace of this stuff is to be found in our lives. All unlawful words 
are to be put off our lips at all times, in all places, and in all circumstances. And we are so often guilty of these sins. But Jesus is so gloriously free of them. So gloriously free of them. True, from time to time, we have spoken righteous words, but we've also spoken unrighteous words. But Jesus, he's a completely different story than us. Every word for Jesus was a righteous word. He never spoke words of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, or slander. All of his words were perfectly loving, and all of his words were perfectly true. There was no gap between his love or his lips. And Jesus used his lips lawfully. He came to fulfill the law. And we know that he did, because not only were his lips filled with words of love, but so was his heart. With this command, Peter is saying, Beloved, be like God's beloved son. Use your lips lawfully and lovingly. And now just stop for a moment and ask yourself this question. Why would Peter address these things? Well, one answer is because they are obviously bad and sinful and destructive to Christ's church. Another reason is that likely he's, as he's writing to elect exiles, as he's writing to those who are finding life in the world difficult. Remember, these are, these are outsiders. These are, are brothers and sisters who are oppressed and out of place. Sometimes under these pressures and the pressures of ordinary life in a fallen world, we give in to these temptations and sins and we treat one another poorly. It ought not be so, and yet too often it is. And when these these things occur in the life of our church, or when there are sad or serious misunderstandings, we ought to be gracious and generous. We ought to be eager and ready to forgive. We ought to overlook and let love cover over a multitude of sins. Charles Spurgeon was so wise when he wrote, quote, Eyes that have wept over our own sin will always be most ready to weep over the sins of others. If you have judged yourself with candor, you will not judge others with severity. You'll be more ready to pity than to condemn, more anxious to hide a multitude of sins than to punish a single sinner. According to Peter, we ought to love earnestly and use our lips lawfully, but we must also long for that which will make us mature in Jesus Christ. This is our final point. Long for maturity. That's what we find in verses 2 and 3 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Follow along as I read there. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 2 and 3. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. First, let's clear up what Peter is not saying. Peter is not saying, be a baby. No, spiritual infancy is unacceptable to Christ's apostle. And it should be unacceptable to you. Growth is a normal part of the Christian life. If you are okay with being spiritually immature and scripturally unknowledgeable, then you need to hear what the apostle Peter is saying. Peter is saying, like, or just as a newborn infant cries out and is unsatisfied until he gets his milk. So, you ought to cry out for and crave spiritual milk. You ought to be unsatisfied until you get that which will further your growth 
in Jesus Christ. And every mother in our congregation understands just precisely what Peter is saying here. Newborns with the tiniest lungs can produce the mightiest cries due to the cravings of milk. And we ought to long for pure spiritual milk in precisely the same way. This is a wonderfully appropriate admonition for those who have been born again. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, and 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. And do note that this command to long for pure spiritual milk is not just for new Christians. It's not for those who have been recently born again. Rather, it's for all Christians at all places and all times in their walk with Christ. We are well aware that many new converts often have a wonderful zeal for the things of God. They are passionate to share their faith. They are eager to read God's word. They are energetic in their study of theology. And they are relentless in storming God's throne in prayer. But what Peter is saying is that that zeal should mark the whole of our Christian life. Not just the beginning. Those who have been born again ought to long and keep longing for the things of God. And the idea here is that at all times we ought to ardently desire this pure spiritual milk. Now, unlike how milk is used in Paul's epistle to the Corinthians or how it's used in Hebrews chapter 5, it's used negatively there, here Peter is using milk positively. For Peter, the pure spiritual milk is the means, the way we grow. But what is this milk and what are the means of growth? Well, since Peter has just been talking about how God's word is living and abiding, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. And since he is now talking about something that sustains life, even grows life, it seems reasonable to conclude that Peter has in mind the Word of God. In fact, virtually every commentator comes to this conclusion and understands the Word of God to be the pure spiritual milk that every believer ought to long for and crave. And they have good reason for coming to that conclusion too. The, the word spiritual in that phrase, uh, pure spiritual milk, is, uh, is, the, is the Greek logikos. That's where we get our word logos from, word from. So believers are to long for the word of God, the pure word of God. Here's a command in the Bible to long for your Bible, to long for reading your Bible, long to understand your Bible, long to hear the Bible taught, long to gather together for the Bible to be uh, instructed upon. Peter is saying that this is what helps you grow up into salvation. Peter's not saying that we can save ourselves by longing for our Bibles. Rather, he is saying that longing for and lingering over and devoting ourselves to the Word of God is how we grow up into the fullness of our salvation. It's how we attain maturity. Why is it that the Word of God leads to growth and maturity in our lives as Christians? Well, it is because in the Word of God, we are confronted with the God of the Word. When we come to the Word of God, um, God, our God is asking us to look and to learn from Him. He shows us His character. He confronts us. He convicts us. He calls us. He commands us. He conforms us. He comforts us. This is the means that He has chosen to use. So here's the question that we each need to ask. Do we long for, do we crave the Word of God? If you do, it is because you long for and crave the God of the Word. Isn't that what Peter is saying to us there in verse 3? If indeed you have tasted 
that the Lord is good. And again, Peter, he's using a metaphor here, uh, but metaphors and analogies, they're helpful to us because they help us kind of understand the truth that's being communicated. We, we know what it's like to taste good food and to want to have it again. So I know a man in this congregation, I won't name any names, um, but he enjoys some good Korean fried chicken. And every once in a while, he will turn to his wife and say, hey, honey, I'm thinking about chi mik. Um, isn't their soy garlic chicken just delicious? I mean, we, we've, we've got to have it. Can we have it for dinner tonight? I, I can almost taste it. Right? If you've tasted good food, really good food, then you just, there are times you've got to have it again. It's almost like it's addictive. That's what the Word of God does in our lives. It cultivates craving for Christ. If we've really tasted the God of the Word in His goodness, love, and grace toward us in Jesus Christ, then we want to taste Him again and again and again. This is why we encourage the tasting of our Lord in each Lord's Day service. It's why God's Word is central in our gatherings. It's why God's Word takes up so much of our time together. It's why we encourage Bible reading and prayer each time you get together with another Christian. It's why Bible reading and prayer are part of our small groups, our community groups, our discipleship hour, and our Sunday school. God's Word is what we ought to long for because in God's Word, we find our God who has loved us. His Word is also that which matures us and prepares us for life in the wilderness of this world. It's what equips us to live as exiles, loved and chosen by God. And as we conclude, we ought to, each one of us ought to consider again Peter's commands. They're surprisingly simple, profoundly transformative, and only possible by the grace of God. Love earnestly. That, that's simple, right? Uh, it's transformative too. Stretching yourself out in love for others is necessarily going to transform the shape of your life, even the shape of your schedule. How can you be stretched out for the good of your brothers and sisters in Christ this week? What's one practical way you can stretch yourself out for your brothers and sisters in Christ? How can you show your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ? And how can the world see that you love Jesus through your love for them? Loving God's people is sometimes hard. God knows that better than anyone. And yet all that he asks, he supplies. So go ahead, start loving earnestly. You might be surprised to find that God strengthens you for the task. How can you use your lips lawfully today and every day? Well, often that will mean that you need to stop speaking. That might be transformative in your life. You say a little less. Sometimes using your lips lawfully will mean that you need to stop others from speaking. That might transform some of your relationships, quite possibly in really God-glorifying ways. And yet still at other times, using your lips lawfully will mean that you need to speak words that are good for building up, that fit the occasion, that will bring the redemptive power of Christ to bear on a conversation. It may even bring about conversion. How can you long for the pure spiritual milk of God's word? Maybe this one's the hardest one of all. Maybe you think, you know, I, I want to long for God's word, but honestly, that longing isn't really there. Well, consider praying. Why don't you pray and ask God to increase your longing? Why don't you ask him to give you cravings? 
Ask him to leave you dissatisfied with a lack of longing. And now you may have to face the possibility that you, you haven't been born again if you don't have that longing for God. But it may also be possible that you've been trying to taste the wrong thing. Or perhaps I should say you've been trying to taste the wrong person in God's Word. Sometimes when we come to the Bible, we come trying to see what morsel it has for me. But God's Word is chiefly about God. So reading God's Word to see what morsel it has for me is like licking the outside of the ice cream container. Uh, you, you may get something of the taste of what's inside as a factory worker may have allowed a little bit to spill over. Uh, but at the end of the day, you're really only tasting cardboard, which is naturally unsatisfying. Um, the real focus on that container is what's in the container, what it contains. So when you come to the Bible, don't read it for the morsel that it has for me. Read it as the generous self-disclosure of God. Who, who, who does this passage speak about? How does this passage speak about God? What do I learn about God from this passage? He is the one who is in himself full of glory, grace, and truth. He is the one who can fill us. He is the only one who can satisfy the longing of every hungry soul. So dear Christian, dear weary traveler, what encouragement do you need along your journey? Keep loving earnestly. Keep using your lips lawfully. And keep longing for the Christ of the Scriptures. Let's pray together.